Multi-Tenant Franchisee Network Design with Jody Lemoyne. Episode 7. Welcome back, nerds, geeks, and ziglets, for another episode of the ZigBits Network Design Podcast, where zigabytes are faster than gigabytes. As always, our goal is to provide you with real-world context around technology. I'm Michael Ziga, also known as Zig in the community, and I'm your host. Our guest expert for today's show is Jody Lemoyne. Welcome, Jody. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a, it's kind of a, an honor to be brought onto these things. I always think that I'm working below the radar, and then someone notices me. It's cool. <laughs> well, we had a chance to to meet at uh, Cisco Live this year, which was a great experience for me doing the engineering death match. That was a lot of fun, and getting to to meet you face to face and the kilt and everything was awesome. <laughs> well, that was actually a really cool experience for me too. I was uh, I was shanghaied last minute into it. Uh, I believe it was Amy Amy Arnold kind of came along and said, "Hey, <laughs> would you be interested?" I go, "Sure, why not?" And the next thing I know, my imposter syndrome's through the roof, and I'm in front of a camera. It's great. Yeah, that imposter syndrome—it's horrible, isn't it? So. Oh, it is. And you know, the minute you say deathmatch, yeah, sure, I'll give it a try, and then you visualize yourself going up against you know someone who there's just no chance that you, you can match and and it yeah it's it was going for a good few days there but you know good for humility i suppose yeah always always thanks for joining i i, I appreciate it i know the the listeners will, will really enjoy this show i think so today's topic is multi-tenant franchise network design something that you've done in the past let's let's kind of just jump right in if you want to give us a, a high level summary of the technology solution that uh, you've deployed Okay, well, this was actually a few years ago, uh, about three, four years ago. We uh, were in a situation with an existing network that was uh, basically a a local, large-scale franchisee. Um, actually, I won't say local. They're national. They're across the country, north to south, east to west, uh, going everywhere from Vancouver Island to St. John's, Newfoundland to Ecolowit uh, on the Arctic Circle, all the way down to near where where I am in the southern area of the country. Uh, so they were fairly widespread, and they had an existing network that they were using for online ordering, and it was pretty much a hub spoke design where the orders went out from the hub. There was no communication between the spokes. It was pretty easy. We we had a, a dynamic multi point VPN phase one design for this pretty by the book, no problems. And then, you know, a couple years later, the requirement came down that the franchisees needed to be able to talk to all of their stores without restriction. So here we are in a situation where, okay, we've got this hub spoke design. Now we have to organize it so all of the stores, all of the franchisee stores can talk without restriction. How are we going to handle this? And, and real quick, just to clarify, so you mentioned location. This is all in Canada, correct? Yes, it is. Okay. Yes, it is. I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose uh, the United States does have a couple things up on the Arctic Circle too. So yeah, that's, that's a good point. I just I I don't know the area honestly, so I just wanted to ask the question. Um, and I, I assumed that if I didn't know, that the listeners might not know. Yeah. Um, north of North Dakota and east of Alaska, you got it covered. <laughs> exactly. This situation is really kind of around you deployed a solution that, that met the business needs originally, and then a couple years later, they came back with some additional business needs, and you had to modify the original solution. 
Exactly. And awesome. because we were within the three years that we would normally use to capitalize the, the hardware, um, changing the hardware was not an option. Okay, so their hardware like life cycle was still like a three or five year, or well, I guess what was their hardware life cycle? Well, this is small enterprise, so their hardware life cycle is until it breaks. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but you know, realistically, purely by you know tax law and general accounting, a three year life cycle is is what it takes to absorb your costs into your bottom line and your write off. So anything after three years, you can make an excuse and say, okay, it's time to buy new hardware. You've already capitalized the old. But if you're at the two-year mark and you need new hardware, you've still got a year left before you're actually able to write off the finality of the old hardware. Accounting departments hate that. <laughs> yeah, they do. They really do. Before we dive into like the business requirements constraints real quick, um, high level though, what, what was the solution that you guys decided to go with? Uh, we went. We switched the DMVPN architecture uh, from a phase one architecture to a phase two architecture, and then on top of that, we ran an MPLS layer three VPN architecture. Oh, okay. And that allowed us to keep the franchisees in their own VRFs and very quickly retune routers at the different uh, stores. Because I didn't mention this, this particular. Uh, franchise organization has a tendency to have their franchisees buy and sell stores quite a bit. So you'll find situations where, you know, franchisee A may have five stores. Well, next month they just bought three off the other franchisee. So now we have to move those three locations into the new VRF. And some of the options we investigated before doing all of this would make that almost unmanageable. Okay, outstanding. That's a great uh, summary and really state, setting the stage for the discussion today. So again, DMVPN network, it was phase one, and then you guys came back within a couple of years and changed it to phase two and you rolled out MPLS. Yes. All right. So moving into kind of the, the high level business requirements, constraints, and drivers, um, what were those kind of drivers, requirements, and constraints? Well, the initial the initial drivers were unchanged. Like the primary reason this network existed was to receive food orders from centralized ordering online ordering systems at the at the hubs okay that that was the key bit we didn't need to change anything for that the second driver was for the franchisees to be able to access any of the locations that they owned from any location that they owned so essentially if they had seven locations and the franchisee was sitting at one, they wanted to be able to get at the resources at the other six without having to VPN in or without having to do it, just being able to get at it from their LAN. Okay, so they needed like um, branch-to-branch connectivity of some sort, access, no blocking of that traffic, being able to connect into their own offices or branches as they as they see fit. Yes. That second requirement. Now, that, that first requirement, just so I can understand this, um, the fast fruit orders that, that you're talking about, are these like inventory orders? Or are they yeah. actual? Okay. So yeah, like, it's, it's basically your typical online ordering. You go on the web saying, I want this to eat. And the order gets processed at the central web facility and then gets sent down to the on-site servers where it comes up on their screens and they go, you got to make this for this person and deliver it here. Okay, so online ordering, food ordering, mm-hmm. um, cent- in a central location, and it gets sent out to the franchise location. Okay, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So then, um, kind of the requirements then? 
I mean, those are the drivers, right? Those are the drivers yep. that really haven't changed the first one, and the second one is really the big change for the, oh, the, the requirements are the interesting ones, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because we, like I said, because we're two years into this, um, and they don't want to change out the hardware because if it's not broken, don't fix it. Uh, we were still using Cisco Generation One integrated services routers. So we're talking um, 3800 series hubs at the Colos and 870 series, usually 877s, sometimes 871s out at the spoke locations. So all the latest and greatest cool technology that Cisco has baked into iOS with the Generation 2s and beyond were just out of the picture. They weren't happening because we're not going there. 15.1 is our hard limit. And to be fair, given that these 871s went out you know, before the 15.1 release, most of them didn't have enough memory to go beyond 12. Okay. So that's a constraint right there. That's a constraint. You know, there's yeah. a lot you can do with the high 12.4 releases, but they're not nearly as nice as the 15s. This was a few years ago. This wasn't anything that happened recently. This was a few years ago. This is a few years ago, yeah. Like now I'd be saying it's time upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But these were the ISRG ones. These weren't like old hardware back then this this is something that was still relatively new hardware um and, and it wasn't didn't make sense to replace them they, they had reached end of life at that point but they were purchased toward the end of the end of life and so the customer still wasn't really comfortable with the idea of giving them up if they worked okay um and to be fair some of the later installations did have uh, the 880 series, which technically even the 800 series is weird. The 870s are ISRG ones, the 880s and 890s are ISRG twos, but they're they've got similar model numbers, so sometimes it's hard to tell them apart. But still, we were constrained by the G ones because even though a third of your deployment is G twos, you can't cut off the other two thirds. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so that that was that requirement. Was there any other requirements? Uh, yeah, commodity internet connections. Okay, so what do you mean? What do you we, mean by that? We are talking about the basic internet connectivity, because in some of these places, that's all you can get. Like we're talking about places where there isn't anything better than dial-up for internet. So. Okay. And by the way, we did have a couple of dial-up locations in all of this, but food orders in general. Uh, don't take a whole lot of bandwidth. So if they come down at 56K, not the end of the world. Um, so we did have a couple of those, but I'd say most of them, you know, your far outlying areas were 4G connectivity, uh, but mostly DSL, cable, PPPoE, static, DHCP kind of stuff. Uh, no place we had any kind of dedicated connectivity, just you know, call up your cable company, call up your phone provider and get something basic. Something basic, cheap, inexpensive, that kind of stuff. And that's the key bit. When you are making low margins on food orders and you're trying to become a technology company, your your budget is not high. So capital expense, we were able to get them into some small enterprise grade hardware. But as far as operational expense and ongoing, yeah, that was not going to be something they were going to shell out for. Yeah, so you were just hit on that there's there's a CapEx and Operation OpEx um, requirements as well here. And again, not technical requirements, but these are business requirements that we have to make sure that 
whatever solution you went with didn't cost money. Exactly. And I've kind of, I've kind of drifted into the business constraints on that one um, because one of the constraints is low margin, high volume food sales, franchisee model. They don't have a whole lot of money to throw around. Okay. I, th- I feel like that's a common uh, constraint for most businesses nowadays. Um, the majority of the businesses nowadays is that that low margin or that, that low CapEx and OpEx cost to everything. Mm-hmm. Which is really interesting because everybody's going cloud these days and, and cloud moves all of your capital expenditures to operational expenditures. And it is long run, sometimes more expensive, but everyone still buys it. <laughs> so we, we went over the requirements. I think we even touched on the business constraints that we just kind of discussed about, like low margin. Uh, and I think you said no budget and inability to change the base technology already. Um, mm-hmm. earlier. Um, so are there any technology constraints? Um, well, basically, this goes back to the commodity internet stuff. The technology constraints are wide distribution of locations. So if you're in a major metro center, then you can get Ethernet dropped to your business cheap, no problem. But if you're up on the Arctic Ocean in a little community of 5,000 people, you're not getting metro Ethernet up there. You're lucky if you're going to DSL. I mean, Exactly. And surprisingly, they do have DSL. And I, I don't know how they pull it off, but they have it. <laughs> As far as I'm concerned, that's an SP question. Yeah, but, yeah uh, that, that is totally that's an SP question. But no, I just was saying, like it's it's you don't find those way out of the way places have anything relatively good for for uh, internet access. Uh, DSL or I mean DSL is probably the best you'll see. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and that's that's usually the case. And sometimes, like in some of the mountain areas, you're not even getting DSL up there. It's a you know, it's tether of phone to your router, <laughs> cradle points or your friend, um, and and sometimes that's what you have to do. And then you're getting like three G at best. Yeah, yeah. But again, online food ordering does not require a whole lot of bandwidth. Like I said, we had a couple locations that were dial up only. Yeah, you're not doing like video traffic or, or even voice traffic across these, are you? No, nothing like it's, that. It's literally just the online orders. That's just going the accomplish. online orders, bit of a reconciliation. Bandwidth requirements are not are not critical there. But, uh, you know, I kind of think about it and I, I look at the uh, pilot implementation we did for this and I go, I, I think I'm one of the few networking guys who has actually gone stringing up external v92 modems to the auxiliary port of an 871 (laughs) in the last 10 years that's crazy (laughs) it works but but yeah it's crazy um so real quick or not real quick really kind of i guess the meat of this is really understanding from a technical perspective the solution that you implemented so we got a number of questions and whatnot before we get into the other solutions that you decided to not go with right so we're going to kind of just really understand what you did with MPLS, uh, how you have it working, if you could give us kind of an overview of that solution. Okay. Well, what we had initially was um, we had a DMVPN dual hub architecture. We had uh, one data center on the east side of the country, one on the west side of the country, uh, each with their own failover to make sure that the other would become active should anything happen to the first one. And um, the DMVPN one Phase one took care of that without any problem. So 
initially, we looked at, you know, how are we going to use the existing architecture to make this work? Because we didn't really want to change it out. That's just too much. We looked at MPLS and we thought, yeah, we can do that. We can, we can have everything come back to the central hubs and we can VRF it from there and, and label it all and, and make it all play. LDP was more than adequate for that task. And we gave it a shot. And we looked at how much bandwidth was going through our hubs based on this spoke-to-spoke con- connectivity. And we realized that's not sustainable. Like just the amount of bandwidth increase we'd have to have on the hubs to meet that requirement was not something we wanted to pay for because, of course, we'd have to pass those costs back down to the franchisees. And now we meet the business constraints again (laughs) where they don't want to spend more money. Uh, So we looked into the idea of switching to DMVPN phase two, where we'd have spoke to spoke connectivity. Uh, Phase three was briefly looked at, but based on the ISRG1s, some of the limitations, and what we eventually had to do with the MPLS to make it work, that didn't work so well for us. So from a phase two perspective, we said, okay, we've got our spoke-to-spoke, we'll do our LDP, we'll set up our MPLS L3 VPNs, and we'll group all the franchisees into their, their own route targets so that Anybody sharing the route targets would share that would share the subnet or would share the networks, and it would all work, which was great, except it didn't help. Switching to MPLS over DMVPN phase two, everything still goes through the hubs. You'd think it wouldn't, but it does. So did some investigation from the bottom to the top and ran into a snag in how DMVPN handles multicast. DMVPN handles multicast by running everything through the hubs. So when you start doing LDP over multicast through DMVPN, everything comes back with the hub as a next hop. So even though you've got all the spoke-to-spoke capability, you're not using it because all your labels are sending you back to your hubs. So that was kind of a problem. Yeah, that'd be a problem, definitely. So I guess the question is, what did you do to to, uh, solve that problem? Well, initially we looked at uh, just using EIGRP for our routing protocol, and that that worked quite nicely. But I I remembered um, some of the crazy stuff that you study when you're about to go into a CCIE lab that you think you'll never, ever, ever use in real life until the day you find out, hey, maybe I can use this. There was some study of using label distribution in BGP to essentially go across ASs when I was studying for the CCIE road switch. And... It was kind of cool at the time, finished the lab, got through it, got a basic understanding of it, but never really thought about it again. But then this scenario came along and I went, okay, hold on. If we switch from EIGRP and LDP to BGP and distribute the labels through BGP 
and run everything as a single IBGPAS on the DMVPN, everything goes out with an unchanged next hop. Yeah, and if you're advertising those networks like you are, mm-hmm. you're going to send what? Spoke-to-spoke traffic. So basically everything still goes through the hubs for as far as the BGP advertisements are concerned. You set the hubs out as a, a route reflector, so everything comes back. But when it gets to all the spokes, they're aware of all the networks with the labels and the endpoints with the next hop unchanged, unlike LDP. So instead of running MPLS IP on the tunnel interfaces, we just ran MPLS BGP forwarding. So it enables MPLS on the interface but doesn't set up any label distribution protocol, relies on getting that through BGP. All right, so you get rid of LDP. Get rid of LDP altogether. Rely on the label distribution from BGP. Next hop unchanged. Yep. And you have your, you have your platform. The really neat thing about doing this with DMVPN phase two is that you don't have the mixing of... BGP and NHRP that you do when you start playing with phase three. NHRP is NHRP. It just does its own thing. BGP is already aware of what its next hop is and where it needs to go. And so when the router needs to go to that hop, it just does the NHRP lookup like it would do for any other traffic and nails up the connection. So the NHRP is not at all aware of the MPLS that's going on. Nor is the yeah, yeah, just doing exactly. the lookup. Nor is the BGP aware that it's using NHRP. There's no marriage of the technologies. They're just one runs on the other. Well, that's outstanding. I really enjoy that the technical discussion on, on um, how you guys solved this this kind of requirement. So you're able to get your spoke to spoke traffic. Um, you're you're not having any hardware issues running MPLS on the hardware you had. No, no, MPLS is, well, you know, really when it comes down to it, the complex thing about MPLS is the planning and implementation. The operation of MPLS is actually a fairly simple thing. You know, it doesn't take a whole lot of hardware to pop labels. So with MPLS, I mean, you really don't have a lot of complex business requirements from the business, like the business side. Like it's really just, hey, we have online orders and they need to get to the, the location closest to the customer to, to provision the order, whatever the order is. Mm-hmm. But real quick, I mean, how did you handle the route target, route distinguisher and VRF kind of design and implementation per franchise or franchise E or franchise kind of deployment? We, we basically gave each franchisee an identifier that would be their route target. Okay. And, you know, we just kind of kept a sheet of those and kept them maintained. And rough estimate, how many of those did you have then? I mean, like oh, 20, 100, something like that? About 80 or so. Okay, all right. And then, so that's per franchise owner. Well, exactly. So we had 80 or so total franchise owners. Okay. And each one got their own route target. And away we went. Now the VRF, that, that kind of stayed the same then? And you're just basing on route target imports and exports? Correct. So we ran a template for all of the spokes. So the VRF name locally remained the same regardless because we were never going to have more than one at the spoke. It was just a question of which franchisee owned it. And at that point, we would just look at the route targets and say, oh, 
that, that's whose it is, which was good because these these stores had a tendency to switch ownership fairly often. You know, they'd like to trade them like uh, Pokemon cards. <laughs> and uh, so when that happened, it was relatively easy for us to go in and just change the imports and exports in the target, and we were done. So um, how often um, did you have to change that, just like on average, you think? Oh, a few times a month. Okay. Um, and how big was the team that managed the solution? As far as that side of it, it was just me. Oh, okay. Well, we had we had a first layer group, a first level group um, that of about five or six people that had the documentation to do it. So they they could have done it. It wasn't rocket science, but the ownership of the provider thought it was better to just have one person take care of it and only have their team take care of it in the in the event that I was unavailable. Okay, no, that that's interesting. I didn't. Um, so there was some operations and maintenance tasks that all kind of went to you at a high level. Anything yep. like major, um, majorly hard or difficult tasks like that. So another another design question on on what you did. So was there like an internet access or shared services VRF that you imported? There was, yeah. So basically anything that handled the uh, actual ordering server access was imported from the hubs. Because obviously we needed to get this, we needed to get the orders down to the stores. That was the the key business driver here in the first place. Exactly. So you have like a shared services VRF and route target route distinguisher in mm-hmm. the colos or in your colocations data centers, and then you're importing um, that into each of the franchisees VRFs. Correct. Or route target route distinguishers, um, and that's how they're able to get that information back and forth. Exactly. So basically, the template had each of the franchisee VRFs exporting back up to the shared services VRF. And then we would import down. And that still maintains integrity between the different VRFs. You're not, you're not cross-talking between different franchise owners, uh, but you're able to get to the shared services VRF and all that's behind the shared services. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, what about internet access? Was that in the shared services VRF? Initially, we did that through shared services. All right. Well, it was actually a separate VRF because we didn't want oh, the okay. shared services talking, but it was it was imported and exported the same way. Um, but we did that initially. But again, we we ran into trouble with the the bandwidth usage as they tried to run Netflix periodically, <laughs> and uh, so it, eventually it was decided that because they were using commodity DSL and cable and 3G and all of that locally that had internet access, that what we would do is just uh, not advertise that down to the franchisees, and we would leak that in from the global table on the template. So then you're relying on, what, the local site's internet circuits to do all internet traffic? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Local internet. They've got it anyway. Yep. Might as well use it, right? Exactly. They're going to use it for, like, Netflix, of course. Why put it on the MPLS network, the MPLS side of things? Correct. So stepping back into like BGP and your route reflector kind of design, obviously the DMVP and hubs were the route reflectors. And mm-hmm. then each spoke was just a ran BGP to the route reflectors, iBGP. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing about this design, but the external labels never actually cross the network. Well, what do you mean by that? Let's let's. Well, it, it's kind of an interesting side effect. So when when you're doing an MPLS L3 VPN, you're stacking labels. So the internal labels are the important ones, 
But you need the external labels in order to get to your endpoints and know that MPLS needs to be used. But this is a single DMVPN dual hub, which means everything is next hop. So even though you're getting your label information and you're getting your endpoint information through BGP, every single MPLS packet that goes across that network is PHP'd. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're getting the labels, you know you can send an MPLS packet there, and that's all well and good, but at no point will the label associated with that endpoint actually traverse the network because it's always being popped because you're always one hop away. Yeah, but if you didn't have the labels, you'd be popping the VPN label. Well, no, it's not so much that, because with PHP, there is no outside label. So the router is seeing it, and it's seeing the VPN label, and it's knowing what to do with it, knowing that it's receiving it, so it's obviously got here. I don't need the outside label to pop. That that endpoint, MPLS, is not expecting to pop a label, because PHP is normal. But what you do need it for is that if there is no label associated the transmitting router doesn't know that it can send MPLS there. So it's going to pop the label and it's going to send it, but it's still going to send an MPLS packet. Whereas if it doesn't know about a label, it's not only not going to pop a label, it's not going to send an MPLS packet because as far as it's concerned, it's not a valid MPLS endpoint. Yeah, I probably have gotten stumped on that one. So so some I have some additional questions that we didn't really get to go over um, and more on what additional... Who are you calling a moron? <laughs> uh, I'm just teasing. Yeah, funny. Um, well, we're going to talk about it. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, Jody. I got to let you know. No. Uh, so we didn't really talk about it, though, but what about like anything from a security perspective? I mean, um, we are talking about what? Transactions, right? Somewhere in the environment, you're, you're processing orders online and they're probably doing some sort of transaction with credit cards if it's online ordering. Um, so I was just curious, what, what was the security aspect, like specifically like within the colo or anything like that? Well, surprisingly, the security isn't nearly as much as you'd think it would be because the actual credit card processing and the customer-facing order system was totally outside of the colo. So it it was being handled in a secure facility uh, that took care of that and essentially just passed the validated orders down. Okay, so they had two separate systems, one for actually processing the order itself and Mm. doing like a credit card transaction or however it was going to get paid, paid for. And then from there, once it was approved and paid for, it sent that to the system. Exactly. So the only thing that we were really guarding against was who ordered what. Now, that said, we we did do standard AES encryption, Ike V1, V2 not available on the G1 routers. Um, so it, it was secure enough. Uh, if we had had to make it a fully PCI kind of environment, then I think the design would have still held up, but we certainly would have been locking things down a lot more. So we wouldn't have been doing local internet access at the franchisees. They would have just had to suck up the cost of that, and we'd be bringing it back home where it could be polished and and filtered appropriately. Um, Everything would go back through the services VRF. So we wouldn't be so worried about the franchisee VRFs because although theoretically they can they could create a leak in any one of them, we could still secure the services VRF from that. Of course. Yep. That makes sense. 
<laughs> but the but the nice thing about this environment is and and let me preface this by saying designing it now there are a lot of cool things that you can do with MPLS and and NHRP with newer iOS revisions uh, that we really couldn't do with the technology constraints on this. But the nice thing about this is that it is essentially a really decent way to get a full you know multi-tenant MPLS L3 VPN network working on commodity gear and commodity connections on the cheap for whatever application. Those are those are great points right there. I mean, I'm sure after listening to the podcast this episode, people are going to really rethink about what they could do with, you know, low-level hardware, um, maybe not as top-of-the-line hardware, uh, and really what solutions they could do at a low-cost solution. I mean, this is pretty low-cost, right? Oh, it is. It is. And admittedly, it has a little more requirement at the spokes because you're carrying routing tables. But really, when you think about it, you know, while NHRP, sorry, NHRP shortcutting and and DMVPN v3 is really cool, really keeping 400 or so prefixes in your routing table at the spokes is not the end of the world. It's still fairly lightweight. Yeah, so real quick, something that I might have um, overlooked both uh, on the pre-show and, and now, I was just curious. Um, so we talked about DMVPN. You kind of mentioned some of the the crypto technology there. Um, so are you running IPsec tunnels with all this too? I kind of usually assume with DMVPN that you are. Yes, but, absolutely. Okay. So yeah. it's all it's all encrypted tunnels back to the hub. We're running um, IPsec tunnels and probably the configuration you mentioned. Yep. Um, so there's there's some configure there's some security there. Spoke to spokes encrypted too. Okay, yep, yep. Spoke to spoke traffic's encrypted. Awesome. Yeah, good stuff. Yep. Interesting thing about this though is that uh, you can get out of some traditional encryption models. Like some people don't like the IPsec negotiation that goes on with the MVPN because sometimes you know things don't line up with your spoke to spokes and things like that. But because you're using an encapsulation mechanism on this, and MPLS is your your ultimate. Uh, payload rather than just base IP, you can do some crazy things like uh, run your DMVPN totally unencrypted. And yes, we had a debate the other day as to whether totally unencrypted DMVPN is really DMVPN, but that we'll leave that for another topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and run things like GetVPN inside it. So what would you do? You'd run DMVPN and then GetVPN and then MPLS? Yeah. Which keeps all of your encryption nicely centralized and keyed. And then you would have what multiple key servers, probably um, yeah. one in one in each data center, one in each yep. colo. You can yep. do that. And you know the downside of it is that you're encrypting your payloads and not necessarily your headers. So yes, someone could theoretically see your overall IP address spec, but because there's nothing in there but MPLS, you, you're really not giving a whole lot away. So I mean I gotta I gotta ask this question, but with your transport, all your transport is over the internet though, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so wouldn't there be an issue with that? No, because you'd actually be running the get VPN on the private addresses that are within the DMVPN. So it ba- basically, it's it's where you put it in the layer. So no, you wouldn't want to run get VPN on public address space because how are you going to f- scope that? But if you ran it inside the DMVPN where you have controlled address space, you can scope that. The only downside is you're encrypting what's in the GetVPN, not what's on the DMVPN itself. 
but given that the only thing that's on the DMVPN itself is your 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 service provider network, if you will, there's really not a lot of giveaway on that one. No, it makes sense. So like your 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 transport's all done by DMVPN itself, and then you're doing GetVPN as the encryption layer. DMVPN yep. DMVPN isn't encrypted. Um, but then anything going across the DMVPN that's going through GetVPN would be encrypted. Right. So so that's all good. Now, I didn't try that one. I, I kind of le- just went with the straight IPsec because it's traditional. It's the way DMVPN usually works. But it's something worth exploring. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said. Like I kind of assume when you're running DMVPN that you're running with IPsec. Mm-hmm. Um, not saying that you can't run it without IPsec. It's just one of those things that I think the majority, um, at least in my circle, assume. Yeah, and and the IPsec layer is kind of independent of the whole thing. If you sit in the lab and you put up a DMVPN and you use absolutely no no protection profile on your tunnels, does it work? Absolutely, it works. All all of my lab scenarios were set up without any encryption on there because it puts too much load on the on the virtual routers. But when you turn on the encryption, it all works the same way. Well, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um. So do you have any last minute kind of comments on the solution that you implemented? Um, yeah, just just a couple little ones. Uh, you got to break a little bit from your traditional MPLS uh, point of view. You know, when you're most people are running MPLS are all about connecting the loopback addresses and using an underlying routing protocol to make this work. In this environment, that doesn't play because the label distribution is still based on the interfaces. So in order to make this work, your BGP actually has to be on the tunnel interfaces itself. So there is no underlying routing protocol. It's purely BGP and NHRP and nothing else. And your BGP with your labels all get originated on the tunnel interface, so you have single hop with label attached within your BGP. If you try and do it on loopbacks, you need a routing protocol to play, underneath and if you have a routing protocol to play underneath bgp does not pick up the labels from what's redistributed into it so it's it's got to be hosted right on the tunnel interfaces and yes you will get a warning from your ios saying don't do this it should be on a loop back we don't like this ignore it it still works it's still functional today. So. It's still functional, still works. Yep. Uh, I just tested it this morning. <laughs> it complains and says, you should not be doing this on the interface. You should be doing this on the loop back. Shut up. Let me do what I'm doing. And it works. <laughs> so we've talked about your solution that you've implemented. Um, you designed, you implemented, you met the business requirements. So let, let's take a minute and go through some of the solutions that you thought about doing, but you kind of ruled out and why you ruled them out. They were all ruled out for pretty much the same reason, unfortunately. Um, and you know, the MPLS was almost ruled out until we uh, found the BGP answer. So we looked at things like uh, just standard policy-based IPsec, where we would basically just script things down and set up tunnels between the franchisees that would work. But the problem is we'd have to bring it all back spoke to spoke again. We'd be doing VRF light for it harder to manage uh if we wanted to do sorry that was hub to spoke not spoke to spoke if we wanted to do spoke to spoke then we'd have to essentially script up spoke to spoke connections but 
this didn't work because we we're using commodity connections. The only places that were guaranteed to have static addresses to play with were the hubs. So that got rejected. Um, easy VPN IPsec connections were looked into because we could bring things back and we could essentially drop access lists through radius to make this happen. But again, hub spoke problem. Everything going through those hubs. All your traffic's going back to the hubs. You know, and really, everything we looked at brought everything back to the hubs. Only the DMVPN solution allowed us to go spoke-to-spoke spoke on this. And even then, until we figured out that we could do um, – we could preserve next hop through BGP label distribution, even then it wasn't going to be spoke-to-spoke. Spoke. So, so, so like as long as we were using LDP and an IGP, it was still hub-spoke for everything, which we did not want. Yeah, your driver for spoke to spoke traffic is is the tra- the data path, data pattern, traffic pattern. There we go. Yeah, the traffic pattern is really the biggest requirement, and really DMVPN was the only option for that. But not just DMVPN, you needed that that BGP doing the label for you. Yeah, because otherwise it was the multicast mechanism was going to bring it back through the hub anyway. So EasyVPN, real quick though, that that you mentioned applying ACLs. Um, how are you going to manage the ACLs in that state? Because I imagine the ACL, ACLs would be different per um, franchisee. We didn't get really far down that path. Okay. You know, we we looked at the options on it, and we kind of abandoned it as soon as we found out that it was all going to come back through the. Or, no, we did. We found out early that it wasn't going to that it was all going to come back through the hub. But as soon as we found out that bringing it back through the hub was going to be way more bandwidth than we were prepared to play with, we just kind of dropped it. But theoretically. You know, EasyVPN is essentially the same thing as using a, the old Cisco VPN client. The only difference is that you've got the router being the client rather than a client being the client. Yeah, exactly. So because of that, you, you've got a few options. You can do things like, uh, you know, radius-based route, route distribution and, and or at least, well, not so much route distribution. We'd use a default route, but radius-based ACLs that sort of thing where you could basically just maintain all your franchisee usernames and essentially have their routers come in on the same usernames that they would. Oh yeah. And then, and then they get applied in ACL and then they get the access they need or not need for first that ACL. Yeah, exactly. And that, that could work. And actually that would be reasonably manageable because we already had uh, access VPN set up that used downloadable ACLs in much the same way. So you could almost reuse the same architecture to make it happen. It just the issue is that your bandwidth, you're still sending all traffic back to everything back to the hubs. And that's going to cost more money because you don't have that much bandwidth. Exactly. Any last minute kind of um, words of wisdom, comments you want to kind of tell the audience? Well, um, I haven't, you know, so this is one of those things that kind of sat on the shelf for a couple of years since we, since we looked at it. And I, I always thought it was kind of a neat solution, never really got a chance to blog about it much. I may yet, but uh, having the opportunity to talk about it on this podcast was kind of cool. In looking at it now, I would seriously investigate the, the NHRP, um, DMVPN phase three and, uh, Flex VPN approaches to this because some of the integration that Cisco has done with uh, MPLS and NHRP and having the labels actually propagate through NHRP is kind of cool. Um, the requirement to have 
everything on the spokes as far as the routes are concerned and the labels and the prefixes aren't isn't really there anymore so that's probably a better way to go about it now but there's still something to be said for the old way of doing it or, or doing it the way this particular design had in that it does keep everything separate it, it doesn't overcomplicate your nhrp it it keeps your your bgp and your labels and your mpls totally separate from your actual dmvpn operations uh, i think that makes some of it a little easier to troubleshoot and minimizes the complexity but that said if i were doing this again i would seriously have a look at the at the flex vpn options yeah i mean um you said a lot there so real quick on what i would take out of that is that i mean um, you really limited limited the complexity of the solution i mean you're you're doing a lot with the solution you've deployed you're meeting all the requirements that that they've asked you to meet both the initial requirements and then the additional requirements after a couple years but then you're also limiting the complexity i mean you are doing some route target imports and exports route distinguishers you know imports exports um but still it's it's simple it's straightforward especially for you managing it really mm-hmm. that, that's really what it comes down to one person managing the solution moving forward um that 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 is a very s- small team to manage a solution like this mm-hmm. um, I, I did i didn't i did forget to ask a question earlier how many spokes a rough order of magnitude how many spokes are there now 450 all right yeah so 450 spokes that you're managing like that that's insane if there's an issue right you're not managing on a day-to-day you know it's more of a hey, change something for us type of thing, right? Well, the nice thing about it being templated and script or scripted is that changes can actually be made fairly easily, even, even on a large-scale installation like this. Um, if we need to uh, switch out route targets and, and imports and exports for a particular franchisee, that's not particularly difficult. We've got scripts for that. Um, the management access to the whole thing is done on the base IPv4 layer. Uh, we're encrypting the base IPv4 layer. If we were if we were not and we were using something like GetVPN, we'd set up a management VRF within the MPLS to take care of it. But we have access to manage the routers without worrying about whether something that we do is going to seriously break it. Not to mention that we run our own dynamic DNS on the whole thing so that even if the whole thing falls apart, we can find the external address of the router and get at it. Oh, what about, you mentioned scripting and everything. Do you use any type of automation? No, it's not quite that that good. We've, we've basically got a set of Python scripts that go out and make changes as required. Okay. But, but nothing, nothing in any formulaic way. Yeah, but you have a, a Python script that you go to, you you run it like through the command line, or do you like uh, run it through like a website web page? No, it's command line. Command line. All right. It's all command line. Command line arguments. Here's what we're changing. Here's what we're doing, and it's all built to task. We've got like twenty of them. They used to be expect scripts. They're Python scripts now. <laughs> no, but that's good. It saves your time to doing it. I mean, you still yeah. have to issue the script, but it saves you time to go into the device and doing the work yourself. Um, well. Jody, I, I really sincerely appreciate you joining us today and going through this uh, the solution, uh, a very detailed approach to the solution, meeting all the business requirements, constraints, and drivers um, from your customer uh, and coming up with a working solution both initially and then the second aspect of the solution as the drivers and requirements changed. Um, 
I really appreciate it. So thank you very much. Well, I really appreciate having the opportunity to get on and talk about it. It's, it's something I've talked with a few people over the years about, and it's one of those things that I've always wanted to do a write-up on um, for the last, you know, three, four years or so. And I uh, just haven't got to it. So thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to kind of get it out there and talk about it. And I may yet do that blog post. It's just... <laughs> just uh, one of those things it's on the back burner yeah so there's so much to do right that's really what it comes down to and that um, is what it comes down to <laughs> so speaking of the blog post um how, how can the audience kind of engage you further stay in touch with you uh find you on the interwebs uh well i'm i'm mostly on my twitter i can be found at ghost in the net on twitter uh, I do limpet blog, so I basically write blog posts here, there, and everywhere for whoever will have me. Um, mostly when I do my own thing, it's on packet pushers, which uh, if you go to www.ghostinthenet.info, it will be a quick redirect to my author page on packet pushers. Uh, if you want to get me on LinkedIn, I'm at Jody L on LinkedIn. I'm a, an early subscriber, so uh, I have a name without too many numbers all over it. <laughs> exactly um, right. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Those are, are the ways to get in touch. Outstanding, Jody. I really appreciate it, man. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Hey, Ziglets. That's going to close up this episode of the Zigbits Network Design Podcast on multi-tenant franchisee network design with Jody Lemoyne. Thanks for listening. Visit zigbits.tech to join the conversation and access the show notes. The show notes for today's show can be found at zigbits.tech slash seven. If you liked today's episode, if it inspired you, resonated something within you, or provided a level of real-world context, let us know. You can subscribe to this podcast on all podcatcher apps, like iTunes. You can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn by searching for Zigbits. You can also send us an email to feedback at zigbits.tech. Don't forget to join us in two weeks for another episode where we will continue to provide real-world context around technology.